0: Good evening, I'm Mike Travisano. I'm ordained as a shuzo in our order and I'll be speaking this evening about attachments. Specifically, I want to talk about uh, living mindfully with our attachments and aversions. Last week, uh, Shuzo Brad, I thought, did an excellent job of talking about emptiness in a way that took some of the heat off of the word emptiness, and I hope to do the same with attachments. I know when I first uh, started studying Buddhism, uh, and ran into these words like emptiness and no self and impermanence, and I have to get rid of all attachments, uh, I had an aversion to them, right? I came from a tradition, from a background where uh, those things started to sound like um, something I couldn't control, right? And I, and I they, quite frankly, they, they scared me. I, I, if anything, I pushed forward in learning more about them because I was, I needed to understand if if these people, if these Buddhist people, are right about it. Uh, I need to understand it because this stuff just sounds kind of scary from my background. So what I hope to do is, like Brad did, is is show that uh, when we when we open the hood and we look at these things, the bottom line is that they these concepts are. Are words or ways to understand our reality a little bit better so that we can relieve suffering for ourselves and for others? That it's the opposite of of trying to be a word that uh, is scary (laughs) or or should like turn you away. So hopefully, I can can shine a little bit of light on that. In fact, uh, I was inspired to talk about attachments um, based on a conversation I had with one of my best buddies and his wife a couple of months ago. We were talking about life, and I was given the Buddhist perspective on things. He's not a practicing Buddhist, and he said at the end, uh, the one thing that he just didn't, like, he couldn't get on board with was this whole idea of letting go of all attachments. Like, if that's the idea, it's commonly sort of thought of, that, you know, there's this idea in Buddhism that in order to attain enlightenment or reach nirvana or whatever, I must let go of all attachments. Right, and if that's if that's the deal, what he said to me was, "I'm attached to my kids, and I I, I never want to give up that attachment. So if that's the requirement, then I'm out. And I I tend to agree with him. I have a son who I love more than I love anything in the world, and if ridding myself of my attachment or my love for my son is is a requirement to reaching nirvana, then i 'm out right so what 's really going on here because that can 't possibly be what what this letting go of all attachments is about right so uh, what i 'd like to do is start with a reading that hopefully can clarify uh, it 's uh, <clears throat> a reading from uh, the Lankavatara Sutra, which is one of the, the Road to Lanka Sutra, one of the main, major sutras in the Mahayana tradition. At the very end of the sutra, the Buddha gives a, a definition of nirvana. He says what nirvana is. He says, Nirvana is where there is no more thirst nor grasping, is where there is no more attachment to external things. Nirvana is where the thinking mind, with all its discriminations, attachments, aversions, and egoism, is forever put away. Is where logical measures, as they are seen to be inert, are no longer seized upon. Is where even the notion of truth is treated with indifference because of its causing bewilderment. Is where there is insight into the abode of reality. I think uh, this passage is great for uh, a bunch of reasons, but two that pop into mind. Purpose of this talk: On one hand, it sort of reveals where you might get the idea that the idea Nirvana is to rid ourselves of att- to get rid of attachments, right? So it's kind of on, on reading it at face value. It's kind of easy for me to see how how you could get that out of that, right? But if you if you look a little deeper into it, it gives us some clues of what's really going on here and what I hope to to uh, break open in this talk. Specifically when the Buddha says, for instance, when we put away logical measures as they are seen to be inert, or when he says that even the notion of truth is treated with indifference because of its causing bewilderment. What he's talking about is suffering, bewilderment, difference. He's talking about where we are able to see mental concepts and with equanimity, without grasping onto them, when they cause suffering. And the last line, I believe, is also a powerful clue of what he's really talking about. He says, is where there is insight into the abode of reality. And in, in my version of the, of the sutra, reality is even capitalized. So what's going on there? Well, I think what's going on there is they're talking about uh, a way of seeing that points to the fundamental truth of what's really going on. In other words, maybe, maybe the world of attachments and aversions live in a side of ourselves that isn't, totally aligned with what's really going on. If I look at what an attachment is, that, that story gets a little bit richer, because an attachment is a part of my ego self. As I developed in, from a tiny baby into this very day now, I, I was conditioned and retrained and challenged on what to believe is good and what's not good, what's... Uh, what a good life should look like, what a good job is, what music is cool, what what's the right food, and why why you know what people I might want to hang out with, what you know that I should you know love my children is part of myself too. That's part of a, a deep that's that's in my DNA. That's part of we would say sconda one. That's I in my very blood is to love my children, but also in in me are perceptions and ideas and conceptions about what a good child is, right, and what good kids do, right? And as as a father, I have that in me. I've got the voice of my own dad, my own mom, like saying, you know, what what a good parent is, right, To to a kid that does something. So these are all things that are part of who I am. In many ways, attachments and aversions are the building blocks of the ego self. If I were to, if I were able and there was enough ink and enough time, I could describe my ego self as a million billion attachments and aversions. Right? Like, this is this is Mike in a book of attachments and aversions. It lives over in the ego self world, who I tend to think I am in the world. In our four-direction system of mindfulness, we, we talk about this, that uh, metaphorically, you know, we are a manifestation of, of oneness, right? We are the sum total of all of the things that have come before us and interact with us now, right? Uh, and we are everything that will come after, right? But while we, he- we are here on this earth we, as this manifestation of Mike, that I am this ego self, and I bump into the world, and I do things, and I know how to act based on that development, Based on my attachments, my aversions, how well they work and how well they don't. If I think about living mindfully, then, I can look at my attachments and aversions in in uh, the context of suffering. Like, where do my attachments and my aversions cause me to suffer? Where do they do harm? Similar to the, a strong attachment like uh, the attachment I had to my son... I know for many people, uh, words like freedom, they have a very strong attachment to a word like freedom. It means something significant to them. Uh, justice means something significant. The moment I start to say, you have, well, you have to let that go, what I'm saying is, you have to let go of your identity. You have to let go of, some, of, of something sacred to you. And that's obviously going to get a strong pushback. If I look at these things mindfully, though, when I think about my attachment to my son, and I think about all those things that it also means, that a good son does these things, is that true? What What if he takes some action that is against, that is opposite to what I think what a good son should do? Well, there's a high likelihood, if I act on that, that I'm going to cause suffering for myself and for him. There's a strained relationship. I'm going to. I'm, I, I could ruin. I could ruin the relationship. I could find myself in a place where I've got to take a dramatic action just to get him back. Right? Not because of something he did, but because of something that I did in my own head, based on my own attachments, my own aversions. In living mindfully, you know, we we teach. Uh, that the first, the first thing that we want to be able to do is recognize that suffering is happening, because when I, when I hear suffering, like I hear a bell, like oh, wow, I'm this is, this is anxiety. This is I'm experiencing depression. I'm experiencing uh, some sense of struggle within myself. That's the first step into being able to understand what's going on and, and to have choice about. What to do next? I I don't know about you, but uh, I could. That I don't mean to say that step like flippantly, because uh, I can go days or even weeks without really noticing that I'm experiencing this sense of anxiety. Right? I can tunnel into it, spiral down. I can, if it's an aversion that's important to me, I can, I can, I can really go with the best of them, for spiraling into what is my purpose here? What, if, if this isn't true about my identity, then the, what's the use of me being here at all? Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. For the better part of 25 years, I uh, had a very strong attachment to the idea that I was a musician, that I was a pianist, that that was what was meaningful about me. Right? And I practiced tons and tons and tons. Tens and ten thousand hours left long ago. Malcolm Gladwell. You know, it was it was precious to me. But along with that idea, that identity of pianist, just like we talk about uh, in our in our ego-self-world, this seeking of perfection, that I had this image of what it meant to be a pianist that was based on an image of perfection, that I was flawless that everything I played was like meaningful and met with an incredible response, right? That uh, if I gave a concert that, that not only people came, but the right people came and the right people said the right things about me, right? Uh, this impossible, impossible image of of what it meant to be a pianist in the world. And so, you know... Spoiler alert! It it didn't always work real well, right? I remember a couple of years ago, when <clears throat> I gave a a concert, and uh, I thought it went terribly. Never mind what anybody else said to me about it, or that it, you know, what they thought. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I thought it. I thought I was terrible. I thought the whole thing was a total bust, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, And the very next day, I left for vacation for a couple of days away with one of my best buddies, Nick. And, uh, that poor guy, you know, thank you, Nicola, you know, he had to listen to me for, you know, the better part of a, you know, half a week, you know, in pure life crisis because I thought that, uh, that what was significant about me was a failure. And, uh... You know, I appreciate him pulling me out of it. <laughs> but if I if I look back on what was really happening there, my attachment to pianist as my identity, as something super important to me, it was made up of a million billion sub attachments about what it meant to me to be a, a pianist, and that none of them were real. None of them were something that that uh, I could possibly do anything about, or were healthy, right? Uh, in in choosing to live mindfully with these parts of ourselves and my part of myself that sees an identity in these attachments, I can choose to let go of them only when I can see them from a different perspective. If I can get away from those images of perfection that the ego self just so, so desperately wants to gravitate to. And I can see them from my true self. Because in oneness, in, in who I really am, I'm lacking nothing. That nothing can be added, nothing can be subtracted. In oneness, there is nothing, there is nothing to be. We talk about uh, this world of the ego self being a world of doing and having. Whereas the world of the true self is, one, is a world of being, of of isness, right? That that I can have and enjoy an ego self. I can have attachments. I can have aversions. But from the perspective of being, I'm not. They they don't. What I do and what I have, what I'm attached to, what I have aversions to, don't define me. They're just some. There's how I play in the world. Who I really am, this my true self, is something that lives in these uh, eternal and yet small little moments of beingness. Maybe uh, as, a, as an example. Like, I recognize something like that probably sounds very uh, mumbo-jumbo-y or some woo-woo kind of thing. But, but there's a practical aspect to it. If I take something like my life as a pianist and I say, if I were the greatest pianist that ever lived, or if I suffered some unfortunate accident and lost the use of my hands and I could could never play the piano again, would that change how much I love my son and my wife? Would it change how the wind feels on my face or the beauty of a sunrise or uh, coming out of of the woods on a hike and stumbling into a meadow that's loaded with with crazy fall flowers, which is going on right now, right? And just that immediate response. Would it change what it feels like to, uh, you know, a big, huge bear hug with any one of these pals that I talk about in these talks? Would it change... uh, What it feels like to laugh, to really laugh at something that's genuinely funny, right? To me, these are moments of beingness, of pure being, right? They have nothing to do with what I have or what I do. But they are what it means to be human. They are what it means to be here. They are, to me, they are windows into my true self. They are what it means to be I really am. If I can live from that place, if I can remember that that's what it's about. That's what it's about. It isn't about what I have, what I do, what I'm attached to, what I have an aversion to. It's about this. Like it's this. It's it's rain. It's the flame of candle. It's it's getting to talk to you. It's it's hoping, it's helpful for somebody. It's these moments that. Or what it is to be connected. That's what matters. And now I'm going to go operate. Now I'll go live. Now I will address what it is that you know, my son does. If, it, if it's counter to some thought I had about what I thought was best for him. Instead of being hooked by, by my aversion or my attachment and reacting to it, I can Pause. I can take a moment and I can say, what's really important here? What is the most important? The most important to me is that he live freely. Is that he live in the biggest way that he can while he gets an opportunity to do so. And that is a whole other world than, well, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. It's a whole other way of saying it. And that's where I want to come from. So." And that last line of the Lankavatara Sutra is where there is insight into the abode of reality. That's what I think, to me, that's what I think is going on here. To see things from a place of being, not from a place of doing and having. I hope this has been helpful. Thank you so much. If you have any questions or you wanted to reach out to us, if you're curious about joining our community, just curious about what, what the deal is with our community, if you're, if you're suffering and you're looking for, for some help or someone to talk to, we're always here. You can find more information at, uh, web, at uh, Sensei Tony's website, AskSenseiTony.com. Reach out right on our Facebook pages here, Ask Sensei Tony or uh, the Blue Mountain Lotus Society pages. Uh, we're, we're always here. Thank you so much. Be well.